There are people who are going out for rides and saying, yeah, I look at my, my levels and I want to stay in that performance zone and I feed based on the levels. But I think a more likely usage case is you do it once a year for a month and then you time average those data or you take just the days when you're doing workouts and say, well, let's see from like midnight to 4 a.m. What were my levels on the days after I did long runs or long rides? Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. This is the stuff you talk about during training, uh, or it might be at the coffee table after training. So we'll aim to break it down, and we invite a guest expert in part A, and then we have an athlete or uh, even a coach in um, part B to provide more of a practical perspective on that question. So, how are you going, Alan McCubbin? What's happening in your world? Ah, what's happening in my world? Well, out of isolation, as I think I mentioned last week, Steph. Yes. Uh, and over the weekend, just been, I went, I took one of my kids to the first kids' party I reckon we've been to in probably two years. Like, wow. since, oh, we might have got one in there somewhere in between the lockdowns. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, they've pretty much all been cancelled, including my own kids' parties over the last two years. So it was kind of bizarre going back to one of those sort of indoor play centre type things and yes. uh, doing a kid's party. So, yes. yeah, I mean, hopefully I don't come down with some other variant yeah. of COVID <laughs> that I haven't already been exposed to yes. as a result um, or a cough and cold and just have to stay away because of symptoms. But, mm. yeah, um, good to Get see to the kids getting back to some yeah. kind of normality. Yeah, yeah. And how about you? I'm good, I'm good. Yeah, just been um, moving yet again. So yeah, just doing that fun stuff really um, and studies going really well uh, with with um, the amino acid one. Two more, I reckon two more people to recruit out. So and, and people do listen because I had someone from Brisbane um, say that they potentially could have come down but um, just the dates weren't teeing up. Um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, just doing that. And hopefully the month of April is going to be my month where I'm going to try and tunnel down a bit more and, um, actually start writing, um, my thesis and my papers. Very nice. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Exciting. But talking about studies, you have one that we really want to recruit for. Yes, yes, it's back on the sodium study. We talked about it a little bit last year. Uh, we sort of ummed and ahed at the end of last year, given how long it's been delayed due to COVID, um, whether we continue on with it or just sort of cut our losses here, but we are going to continue on. So we need, we only need probably two or three more participants. Yeah. Um, so just for those listening, the study looks at sodium replacement. So whether you replace the sodium in your sweat during exercise or not, what does that do to you, um, both during and, and in the 24 hours post-exercise? Um, really interesting study, um, doing some stuff that really hasn't been done before. So it'll be really interesting to have a look 
at some of the results of that. I guess in terms of eligibility, so it's for people aged 18 to 50, generally have completed a marathon distance or greater before um, because you'll be running on the treadmill for, dare I say it, five hours. That said, it's not a quick five hours Mm -hmm. as in pace. So, you know, it's for everyone who's been in the study so far, it's between 40 and 50 kilometres that you run during those five hours. So it's not not massive pace. It's sort of marathon at five-hour pace, if you like, mm-hmm. um, in a little bit of heat, but not dramatically so. There's some breaks in between, so it's not like five hours continuous running. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to watch Netflix and things like that if you want to, um, and you get to spend a bit of time with us, get a whole lot of data about yourself. Yeah. So if anyone is interested, you can go on our social media, the link. So on Instagram, the link in the bio uh, link tree, uh, and the same for Twitter in the bio as well. Um, there'll be a link. You follow that, it takes you to a little page with some options, uh, and one of those is about the study. So if anyone's interested, you can get in touch with us through that. Yeah, and um, why do they, like, because a lot of our studies, you know, they're running for two or three hours where we struggle to get people. Um, what's the reasoning behind the five hours? Are you just like a, a mean person or is there a reason for five hours? Well, I'd like to think I'm not a mean person, Steph, but maybe <laughs> I am. Um, no, but the main reason is because we want to you know, get a significant sodium loss through sweat over that period of time. Uh, obviously, the longer you go, the more sodium you're going to lose uh, and then to see a bigger effect of whether you replace that sodium or not Um, Mm. that's basically why because in two hours of exercise for example you're probably not going to lose enough sodium that we would ever really need to seriously replace it anyway Um, so we're sort of Mm. looking more for sort of the ultra distance in mind we're obviously not going to get people in the lab for 10 hours at a time Um, so five Mm. and a bit of heat is kind of the compromise Mm -hmm. yeah no that makes sense and it's yeah it's really um Mm applicable to the um ultra athletes out there and there's geez uh so many of them take um sodium tablets so um if Mm. you know we don't actually know what the benefits um of that potentially is so if you're one of those ultra people taking them Come and help Alan out with this study um, because it's going to help answer this um, and it's going to contribute a lot to, um, yeah, giving us better evidence-based practice. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's a section tacked on the end um, where we look at what happens in the 24 hours afterwards as well, which is really relevant for multi-stage racing. So it's okay for day one and what you're doing, but what happens when you wake up the next morning for day two as well so yeah um so just uh, i guess um you mentioned there with someone inquiring from brisbane yeah. before steph so obviously the lab yeah. is in melbourne um and with most of our studies you know there are multiple mm-hmm. visits so it's not like you can just pop down for a day do the study mm-hmm. and go home again unfortunately um so like most of the studies this one there's an initial visit where you come in for an afternoon um, and do a whole bunch of tests and then you come back about a week or two later um having consumed a whole bunch of food that we provide as part of the the control part of the study so you sort of have to be in melbourne during that those sort of three days leading into that trial do the trial and then come back again the next day for about 10 or 15 minutes for a blood test and a couple other things uh, and then repeat that again a couple of weeks later so uh, we did have one very dedicated person Mm. shout out to erin who came across from adelaide um, but happened to be in melbourne for a few other things so it kind of worked out and had friends to stay with so um, but you know, we've had an inquiry. I think we had someone 
inquire who lives on a cattle farm in like remote far north wow. Queensland. I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work, <laughs> okay. unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, you do have to be in Melbourne for those periods of time and, you know, there's a couple of weeks apart, which makes it inconvenient. It's not like you can come for a week yeah. and do the whole thing. But that's probably true of pretty much all of the studies that yeah. we run in the lab, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Well, hopefully we can um, recruit some through through this podcast. Um, mm. Anyway, so today's episode out, I'm actually really excited about this one, as I know you are. Um, so tell us who we've got for, well, what the question is and who we've got. Yeah, our episode is 33B today. And it's a follow-up to last week's episode. So the question is, can a continuous glucose monitor improve my performance nutrition? And uh, really excited to be joined by runner and journalist on all things endurance sports science, Alex Hutchinson from Canada. Yeah, I think a lot of people, a lot of our listeners will be um, aware of Alex and would have um, read his his work. Um, Definitely. Yeah. So also, before we get stuck into it, um, social media shout-outs or questions? Yeah. So on Instagram, we had uh, Christina Mollenhauer, I think is the correct way to pronounce it, who is a nutritionist and a student dietitian. Um, and she mentioned the podcast, you know, Instagram story as, as one of a couple of sort of sports nutrition related podcasts you've been listening to a lot lately. So okay. thanks for the shout out, Christina. Uh, and we also had a message come in from El Presidente, <laughs> the president of Sports Dietitians Australia, Gay Rutherford, down in Tasmania. So shout out to Gay. And she said, how to contain the excitement. Special guest next week is Alex. Obviously, in this episode, his writing is amazing. Totally agree, Gay. Uh, can't wait to hear him talk about his personal observations and learnings um, after playing around with CGM and worth the extra day's wait because, obviously, when you're listening to this, it <laughs> did come out a day or two later because Alex was on holiday. We had to wait to, to get him <laughs> on the interview um, a couple of days later. Yeah. Um, on Twitter, also, we were contacted by Professor Jamie Rossjohn, who is a professor, uh, I think, in some sort of biological science at Monash Uni, actually, where we both mm -hmm. work. Uh, and he was just telling us that he's been enjoying the podcast and asked whether we'd covered the topics of fasting diets and paleo diets and whether they were suitable or not for endurance athletes. And obviously, they've been quite popular over the years in various different forms and different names, uh, particularly probably the last 10 years in the post-Twitter era, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, and, and I guess, you know, we have covered obviously low-carb, high-fat diets, which is not exactly the same, but a lot of people sort of associate paleo diets with that style of sort of keto type diet. Um, in our very first ever episode, episode 1A and 1B, uh, with Professor Louise Burke, who did the, um, the supernova study looking at um, low carb, high fat diets in elite race walkers. And then we actually interviewed one of the race walkers, Evan Dunphy, who was in that study mm. um, about his experience doing the low carb, high fat diet as part of the study. So um, yeah, if anyone wants to listen to that, you may not realize from our back catalog of episodes, because you often don't see all the way down to the bottom of the list. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole bunch of, of really interesting ones way back at the start there. So mm -hmm. yeah, go back, you can go back and have a listen to that. Um, we haven't talked specifically about intermittent fasting. Obviously we've touched on, um, I guess how you strategically, you know, change your fueling around different training sessions. And I guess intermittent fasting is another way of doing that. That's not necessarily, uh, aligned to training or not. So maybe that's something we can have a chat about at a different time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Steph, I'm sure 
there's been more feedback. Hopefully this time it was not you having to give someone else feedback. It was them giving you feedback. <laughs> they did. They did. Um, so uh, the lovely Phil, um, I'm not even going to try and say his last name. How do you say that last name, do you reckon? I just call him Phil. Oh, yeah, I could say there was about five different ways I could pronounce that, so I'm not yeah. going to attempt nah. it either, Steph. <laughs> so Phil, he knows who he is. Um, he, um, uh, yeah, I run with him a lot and he's been a participant, got sucked into being a participant, which is great. Mm. He enjoys our podcast, um, loves it. Like I know when he prepped for Melbourne Marathon, he, you know, had listened to our carb loading episode. He benefited from the leading diet that we do in our study and he found that was awesome. So, yeah, he's been great to us and hopefully we've helped him as well. But he's, yeah, he was excited when I told him what our next one was was going to be on um, continuous glucose monitors. So he's keen to listen to that one. Um, and then we also had uh, Matt Ryan um, from um, Interstate and he um, shot us an email and said he's just started listening to the podcast um, and sounds like he's enjoying it as well. So thank you very much, Matt. Yeah, thanks. Just a reminder that you can find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at The Long Munch and you can find us on all your popular podcast platforms. Let's start to get stuck into it. So today's episode, our yeah, so episode 33B, can a continuous glucose monitor improve my performance nutrition with um, runner and sports science journalist Alex Hutchinson. So many of you may be familiar with Alex. I, I was thinking about the intro before, Steph, and I was like, I, I really love Alex's writing. So for those of you not, not aware, um, Alex used to write for Runner's World, uh, the North American uh, version. Mm -hmm. he, he lives yes. over in Canada and now writes for Outside. Um, and has a uh, an amazing book called Endure, which I was just reading a couple of months ago, actually, mm -hmm. which sort of delves into the the sports science around fatigue and endurance performance, and um, both the physiological and the psychological elements of that. And it's an amazing read. His ability to weave stories and real life examples in with the scientific aspects of it, and then the actual process of doing the science, you know, speaking to various scientists, you know, a lot of the people, you know, going through Endure and reading that or, or just reading his articles, um, you know, they're, they're people that we know through their work, not necessarily people that we've met, some of them we have. Mm. Uh, and so it's, it's really interesting to see that come together into, you know, such an amazing narrative in Endure. He's actually written articles about some of our Monash studies as well mm. um, in Outside in the past, which has been great. Mm. But it, it's always a double-edged sword with Alex for me because I love his writing so much, but it always makes me feel really bad about my own writing because he's such <laughs> a good writer. Um, but that's okay because I enjoy it so much, I, I don't mind. Um, so, yeah, so Alex is, is based in Canada, but as we'll hear, he actually spent a little bit of time. I didn't know this until I read Endure, but he actually spent a bit of time here in Australia as well. Mm. So you're going to have to find out what he was doing here. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So that's three for three for our CGM guests spending yeah. time here in Australia. Yeah, yeah, mm. something about Australia. Yeah. All right, and just before we uh, play the interview here with Alex, um, just to let you know, if you wonder why Steph is suddenly absent in the second half of this episode, she actually is moving house on the day that we recorded this interview and the removal has mucked up the time. So originally they were coming after the interview and instead turned up halfway through the interview. So I'm not hogging all the questions, don't worry. Um, Steph will be in the first half of the interview 
but then she she sort of has to make a quick exit and is busy moving boxes and furniture and things like that. So uh, yeah, that's why. But anyway, we'll get on with this interview with Alex Hutchinson. Let's do it. All right, Alex Hutchinson, welcome to The Long Munch. How are things going over there in Canada? Very well, thank you, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, no, pleasure to, pleasure to have you, and you've just been back from holiday, hopefully refreshed. Yeah, I actually tra- traveled internationally for the first time in two oh, years, wow. I guess. I went down to the States to visit my in-laws in, in Arizona, so I'm uh, nice. uh, slightly tanned probably and... and you know, 1% more relaxed than I was a month ago. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, now, you're, you're, I think a lot of people would, would know your name. You're a journalist. You write with um, Outside and before that, Runner's World on topics around endurance sports science and obviously nutrition is part of that. Um, and I know you're a pretty serious runner yourself in, in college as well, but I'm curious how you went from sort of, you know, doing a lot of competitive running uh and then down the, the path of sort of journalism and, and writing about the science of, of running and endurance sports. Yeah, it was definitely not a, a linear pathway or one that I planned out. I, my, my initial training was in physics. I, I did a, a, a doctorate in physics and actually postdoc for a while in physics while I was competing most seriously. And I, I had a sort of change when I was 28. Um, I sort of finally accepted that I actually didn't like physics that much and um, <laughs> needed to find something else to do. And I really did like running and uh, you know there aren't not being fast enough to make running a career i was you know what are the other ways that you could end mm-hmm. up thinking and talking and watching about running um and journalism was something that popped up although i didn't know if i'd actually be able to make that aspect of it work so i i went back to journalism i did a degree in journalism a master's degree when i was 28 and then i started out as a uh, i got an internship as a general assignment reporter at a newspaper covering, you know, the car crashes and the dog fashion shows and things like that. Um, I did that for 16 months. And then I, I, well, I say I went freelance, which is another way of saying my job ended and and I didn't have a job. So I was freelancing about just, you know, anything where I could pay the rent, but I had an obvious, like deep, deep interest in running and more, more generally in endurance sports. And I had a background in science. Now, physics doesn't really tell you anything specific, to be honest, about running, but it, it gave me a comfort level with talking to scientists, uh, reading scientific papers, not understanding scientific papers, but yet being comfortable, uh, you know, asking people about them. And so I, I started to pitch that kind of story. And I, I got a few, I got, I, I can't remember exactly when, but maybe around 2008 or so, I got my first story with Runner's World on a sort of sciencey topic. I think it was heart rate uh, training or something like that. And uh, gradually I did more and more of that. And I got more interested and I discovered, and, and at that point I sort of discovered this peer reviewed literature, um, on, you know, exercise physiology, which I was completely oblivious to even as a, a science student who was competing. And that was really interesting for me. And that led me to pitch more and more anyway, all, all, all of which is a, a long way of saying that I ended up sort of stumbling into this specialty where now if I were introducing myself, I would say, oh, I'm kind of a, I'm a journalist, I'm a science journalist, I'm an, an endurance science journalist like i write mostly about the science of endurance um, but it's yeah. it, it happened over the course of about a decade i would say yeah cool i think biomechanics might have been the most obvious pathway but that's yeah nice. although to be fair <laughs> I, I read biomechanics papers now and i'm like whoa i don't i don't remember enough <laughs> physics to, to follow it and they also use a slightly different language you know there's there's moments versus you know mm. angles moments of inertia like we do there's there's a different nomenclature, so I actually don't find it as easy as I might have hoped to to translate yeah. that. 
yeah, fair enough. Uh, and you obviously have your book, Endure, that was published in 2018, which I uh, managed to read a couple of months ago, which really enjoyed. And I've got one as well. I got um, I got one of my participants and she. I was telling her that we were interviewing you and she said, Endure, that's a fantastic book. Here, you want it? And so now I have got the book, so ah, I will be reading it too. I won't spoil the ending. All right, please don't. <laughs> um, so I'm interested in, like, obviously it, it looks at, I guess, the science, uh, particularly around fatigue and endurance performance, um, both sort of physical and, and psychological, and pulls it together into a really nice narrative with, you know, examples and stories along the way. But I'm interested in how you got the idea for the book in the first place and how long it took to put together, obviously published in 2018, but I'm guessing it was a while in the making. Yeah, it was pretty close to a decade in the making. And I, I think the the trigger for the book actually was some in that in that period where I was just describing where I was just discovering that there's this peer reviewed literature. I came across uh, on exercise physiology. I came across a I can't remember how, what they call it a point counterpoint or contrasting perspectives uh, in mm. like medicine and science and sports and exercise about hydration. And it was Tim Noakes versus some other dudes. Uh, about oh, whether I, I dehydration side by side yeah yeah yeah, yeah. D- does dehydration impair performance and i was like what is this like does gravity point down like what kind of how are we gonna have a debate on whether dehydration impairs performance and i read noakes's take which you know essentially i would say the just the fundamental point he was making there was the distinction between thirst and dehydration that if you drink when you're thirsty you will be dehydrated in the sense of having lost water but um it may not. You may not be in a state where your performance is impaired. And of course, this is a hugely controversial topic. I'm not going to uh, drag us down there right, right now. But it was fascinating to me, and that led me into reading more of of Noakes's work on what he called the central governor model. This idea that um, fatigue is imposed. That when you when you when you hit your limits in a race, it's not that your legs are incapable of going. It's that your brain thinks you should slow down for your own self protection. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's a that's a radical idea, and it and it corresponds very closely to my subjective experience of of racing. If this is what it mm. feels like to be two laps to go in a race and feel like you're going as hard as you can, and and getting dropped, and then the bell goes with one lap to go, and all of a sudden you're sprinting, and you're like, "Hey, why am I sprinting now?" When I I I mm. felt like I was completely toast. So anyway, I found that very compelling. I thought this should be a book. It was like 2008, 2009. In 2009, I started getting in touch with people and saying, I'm writing a book on the brain's role in endurance. And that's when I, I went and visited Tim Noakes in South Africa in his lab in 2010 with the explicit promise that I was writing a book about this. Um, now, the book came out in 2018. It, it turned out, you know, the, the Noakes' picture is, is not the whole story. Um, nobody's picture is the whole story, as far as I can tell. There's still a lot of unanswered questions. But it, it during those, let's say, six years from 2010 to 2016, I was writing for Runner's World and for other publications and using that as an opportunity to explore all the topics that I wanted to explore in this book. And so by the time I sat down to write it in about 2016, I had, you know, the the 100 plus interviews. I didn't so I didn't then have to do all the interviews at that point because I'd been spending 6 7 8 years um sort of exploring these topics. Yeah. Awesome. And I think, yeah, and came, came together really nicely, putting all of those those bits and pieces together in the end. Um, an amazing read if, if anyone hasn't read it. Um, and I did read in there, which I didn't realise until I'd read the book, that um, 
you'd spent some time in Australia, which our guests last week, Dana Lee and Dave Martin, also have as well. Um, but tell us what brought you down here to Australia and how long were you here for and what did you get to do while you were here? Yeah, so my, my wife went to, uh, well, my then fiance and now my, my now wife, uh, went to medical school at the University of Sydney. And uh, mm-hmm. as a freelance journalist, I was lucky enough to not have any um, need to be in any particular place, although I had to get up in the middle of the night a lot to do, do interviews back in North America. So I, I came down, we spent four years in Sydney and then four months in Canberra. Uh, and contrary to what most Australians think, I, I, from what I gather, I actually loved Australia, uh, I loved Canberra. Um, mm. For running, it was just amazing, the trails and the groups. And I got a chance to meet some of the people at the Australian Institute of Sport, um, sort of Louise Burke and Shauna Halson and Laura Garvican and people like that. Got to run with Dick Telford's group. And uh, it was really great. Um, I, I had a, a lot of fun um, throughout that time. Um, and then eventually, you know, my wife got a career opportunity back in Canada and our, both of our families are here. So we we moved back in 2013, I guess it was. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I think most uh, probably runners, cyclists, triathletes don't mind Canberra. I think it's it's the non-athletes that don't. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really great place if you want to ride a bike or do something like that because, you know, you can walk out your door and there's trails and bush and things pretty much straight away. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, we could, you know, a block from our flat, we could go and run with 100 kangaroos every morning. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the, the morning before we left to go back to Canada, I was like, Lauren, you have to, my, to my wife, you have to come and take a picture of me where we run every day in like at Ainsley Park, I think it was, and, you know, of me running through a flock of a hundred kangaroos, just because this is such an iconic experience and we've, we take it for granted now, but it's, 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 it will be so weird to look back on. And so we did that. And then like a month later, we read in the news that an Australian member of parliament had been like kicked in the face by a kangaroo while running <laughs> through Ainsley Park. So I was like, oh, he's yeah. probably still angry. Cause I, I was like sprinting through them to try and get a good picture. No, I was probably angry about what the politician had to say. Yeah, that's fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, now, you've written, obviously, on a lot of topics, as we said, relating to endurance sports and, and nutrition as well. But I'm interested in what, I guess, you've found personally the most fascinating or surprising of those sort of different topics that you've written on over the years. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, when I think about what's surprising, of course... The stuff that I find most interesting is is stuff related to running, and you know this. I mean, this whole idea of a central governor and stuff I found fascinating, but I didn't find it surprising because I came from the runners' world, the running world, um, and and because I've sort of gained knowledge gradually about all all this stuff. So the, the you know in terms of the things in in endure that actually surprised me, probably the chapter that that sort of knocked my head off was talking about breath holding, like oxygen and breath holding, and and particularly about free diving. And mm. these people who can hold their breath for 11 minutes. Um, yeah. Y- you know, so th- that was, if, if I had to pick something where it's like, that I wouldn't have believed if someone had told me it in a bar, I'd be like, yeah, sure, buddy. Just like you ran a three minute mile back in the day or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's probably the most surprising thing for me. Yeah. Is there anything that you can say would be the, the weirdest or the strangest thing you've come across over those, that time? Ooh, that's interesting. I mean, in in some ways, again, the free diving, it's like, mm. that just seems inhuman. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I, I think of like, there's lots of funny things like the, 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 there was a big thing in the 70s where uh, human powered flight. So crossing the English channel on basically a bicycle with wings. Uh, <laughs> is it the Gossamer Albatross? I think something like that. So that, that's apparently a big deal in like critical power research. 
but it's yep. like I looked at the pictures and I'm like, are you kidding me? That guy, you know, <laughs> he crossed the English Channel, essentially pedaling a bicycle. So that yep. stuff like that, I I, I find really, um, you know, amusing and fun. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, so yeah, today we're looking at can a continuous glucose monitor improve my performance nutrition. Um, but before we get into that, I guess, um, I'm interested in your take on wearables more broadly. Um, and I'm sure you've tried a lot of them over the years with your research into um, writing. Um, what do you think the fascination is with runners, cyclists and triathletes that use these kind of wearables and, and gadgets? It's a good question because it, it's definitely addictive and it's and, you know, it's amazing to see how much it's taken over the world in the last five years. Like, you know, everybody is on Strava. Um, before I say anything about wearables, I should probably just give some context about my own relationship with them. Um, I run with a Timex Ironman watch that has a, a stopwatch and that's, that's <laughs> about it. I, I've got no, um, uh, data being collected and that's not, but that's not because I don't see the attraction or find the interest it's actually the opposite because it's it's like a self control device to avoid being sucked into the vortex of uh hyper analyzing <laughs> my data like i'm a guy who back in the 90s when i was competing i would wake up every morning and i would take my pulse manually before i moved out of bed and then i would stand up count 15 seconds take my pulse again i would take those two pulse values enter them into a spreadsheet lotus one two three and plot the, the the spread between the supine and standing heart rate, looking for early signs of overtraining. And of course, on my training log, I had my not just my mileage, but my mileage in each pair of shoes, my mileage in different wow. uh, of intervals. <laughs> I, I love data. I find it really fascinating. Yeah. Back then, data was sparse, and so you had to work yeah. for any data. And mm -hmm. so I couldn't go too far down the rabbit hole. Now, it's like when I have tried GPS watches, it's like, oh, all I do is go for a run. I come back and it's like, what's your left-right balance between, you know, of foot strike and up-down motion and this and that. Mm -hmm. And you can plot it versus like, oh, when my speed went up, but the gradient was going down, but my heart rate was doing this, but my left-right balance was doing that. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I do think there are useful insights to be pulled from this data. But I also, so for me, as a 46-year-old guy whose who's serious, serious competitive days are behind him, I still train, I still run every day, I still do workouts, but my goal is to enjoy myself, mm. uh, you know, to have a break from work and all this sort of stuff. Mm. So I actually resist it deliberately. So when I'm talking about wearables, I ha I'm sort of filtering it through this personal skepticism, but I have to also acknowledge that if I was 25 or 22 or whatever the case may be, and and in a situation where every 0.1% mattered to me performance-wise, I would I would risk getting sucked into the vortex in order to search for those things. So I, I think, I don't know if runners or, and cyclists have a unique personality type that makes us love, um, you know, analyzing data or whether it's just if the data is there and if you're pouring so much of yourself into a hobby like this, that it's inevitable that you want to get as much information as you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess one of the latest wearables that we're tending to um, see runners interested in um, is uh, what's called Whoop. Have you um, have you tested that one? And any thoughts on on that particular one? I, I haven't actually tested it. Although literally, like yesterday, I think I got an email from 
the PR team asking yes. if they could send me one and have a conversation and yada, yada, yada. Um, yes. So I guess my, my thoughts on Whoop are, I mean, there's, there's, there's different questions you can ask about wearables. It's like, does it collect what the data that it says it's collecting in a useful and accurate way? And then if that data is perfect, does it tell you anything interesting or actionable? And so on the first part, it whoops, you know, it does a bunch of things. It's got the skin temperature and the, you know, the ox blood oxygen saturation. Those things are just um, diversions, I think. Its, its main focus is heart rate variability. I think heart rate variability is a real thing. I think it it contains useful information. And I don't know, but I assume that Whoop is measuring it accurately. Although I will say my experience with wristbands, I have a very skinny wrist because I'm an endurance runner. Uh, it doesn't make, I, I get absolute junk from, from wrist-mounted heart rate monitors, I think, because mm -hmm. it doesn't make a good enough seal. So light leaks in around the side. So for me personally, mm -hmm. I, don't, I haven't mm -hmm. tried Whoop, but I know that I, I'm cautious about wrist-mounted heart rate monitors. Anyway, mm -hmm. Whoop is measuring heart rate variability. Heart rate variability mm -hmm. does tell you something about the state of your autonomic nervous system, maybe about whether you've recovered correctly. What Whoop and, and competing products also do is then take this information, primarily heart rate variability, but it may, I guess, also factoring in uh, whatever else it knows about you to produce like a readiness score. And so question two is like, if I pay attention to this readiness score, does it tell me anything more than I could find out by waking up in the morning and say, saying, do I feel like crap today or not? So if, if I wake up and see that my whoop score is, tells me that I'm not very training ready and I don't train, so I back off. And if I do that over the course of months, uh, um, or, or whatever, will I end up faster or fitter than if I just followed common sense? And to my knowledge, no one's ever demonstrated that. There are some studies with heart rate variability, more generally, not the WHOOP specifically, that show superior outcomes, but they always compare it against a completely rigid model where it's like, either you do what we wrote on this piece of paper every day with no regard for how you're actually feeling, or you respond to the heart rate variability reading. And that's that's a low bar to clear, right? You're, you're saying, can you can it coach you better than an idiot? But if you mm. if you make the bar like, let's pretend that you're a human and that if you have a scratchy throat and you got four hours of sleep last night and you ran 42 miles and you wake up and you're like, you know what? Today I'm not going to do a hard workout. Um, can it outperform that? I don't know. I don't know. Mm. So I I don't it's, I don't think Whoop is like power balance bracelets or something where it's like a plastic hologram <laughs> that's pretending to to you know improve your balance that yes. is junk yeah whoop is is real stuff mm -hmm. but and, and 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 if people enjoy using it it's great maybe it just kind of can it can validate your your feelings of like yeah am i feeling lazy today or am i feeling a little bit run down and i need to to back off well whoop can maybe validate yeah you, you are feeling a little run down um but whether it, you know, if you're not really into it, are you missing out on anything that you can't get in other mm. ways? I'm unconvinced, and if they want to convince me, I'd like to see some some data, some published data, not just testimonials from really yeah. famous athletes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, how do you keep up with all that is out there? Do you have any sort of tips for our listeners on how to know whether something is kind of garbage or worth checking out? Yeah. So, uh, two part answer. How do I keep up with the stuff that I write about? 
I look at the peer-reviewed journals. So I, I, I scan through the, the contents on a regular basis of maybe a dozen different uh, journals, stuff like Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise or the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, yada, yada, yada. How do I keep up with what's out there, like the whoops and the URAs and the continuous glucose monitors? Um, I kind of don't. <laughs> I wait till it <laughs> finds me. I assume that if something is actually working, it's going to be like all over the place and I'm not going to be able to miss it. And if I had to give a heuristic for um, f- for the, your listeners to like, how do I judge whether a new device or a new technique works? My my simple heuristic would be it, it doesn't. Like just that's a that's a very safe starting point. Anything <laughs> new, it doesn't work. It's not doing anything. It's not useful to you. Now, once in a blue moon, you're going to miss something good. And I remember when the first studies on beet juice came out in 2009. I actually wrote a blog post saying. Yet another weird, like performance enhancing uh, <laughs> claim. You know, like don't pay attention to this. And then a year later, or so it was like, oh, it, this seems there seems to be something here. There's like there, there's there's some real science here. If something works, and if something has a an effect that is big enough that it is actually worth paying attention to, then someone's going to demonstrate it very clearly. It's going to be all over the place. You're going to be unable to miss it. If there's like a, a small subset of the internet that believes that, you know, doing X, Y, or Z may give you an edge. You know, if, if, if you're interested in that and you want to do that by all means, but if you want my heuristic on whether it actually makes up a, 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 a measurable difference, the answer is almost always no. Mm-hmm. And do you think there's an element of sort of FOMO to that as well in terms of people that are saying, well, it might be helpful, it might not be, but if I don't jump on this now and everyone else does, they, they're going to get ahead and I don't want to be left behind kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that's, that's in a sense, almost a rational thing to think for elite athletes. Yeah. If you're at the Olympics where every fraction of a second counts, then first of all, you can't, you know, the, the opportunity, like the cost of trying things out. Yeah. It's going to cost you some money, but this is your whole life right here. Mm. And so you give it a try and as long as it's not hurting you, why not? Because every once in a while, something does help. And moreover, um, there's a belief effect. There's a, place, you know, placebo mm. is kind of a dirty word, but it's like, you want to believe that you've got the edge that nobody else has. I, I mean, I still remember a, a talk that Louise Burke gave from the Australian Institute of Sport after the 2008 Olympics. And I think that was the Olympics where the Australian team was using slushies to pre-cool before competitions. And before that, they'd been using ice bats and before that, they'd be, or ice machines and stuff like that. And the, and and the question was like, why did we switch to slushies from ice baths? Like, is it demonstrably better? No, but she she basically said, look, the athletes always like to have something new to feel like they're you know one step ahead of the 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 crowd. The Australians brought ice baths to to Atlanta in '96. Everyone else caught up. They've got the ice by 2004. Everyone had ice baths. So in mm. 2008, Australia had slushy machines, and so they still yep. felt like they were ahead. Now, for the average person, lots of some. There are plenty of people who have sufficient disposable income, sufficient time, and sufficient interest in this stuff that, yeah, they want to try out the latest thing. That's cool. Like that's that's fine. I mean, not power balance plays. It's don't don't go for stuff that's that's <laughs> obvious junk. I think that's long gone anyway. <laughs> yeah, it is. But there's the equi- the equivalent of the next. I, yeah. I use that as a shorthand for a whole um, sector of of junk yep. that's out there. But there's a lot of stuff that, which, for which I can use use Whoop as a shorthand, where it's like I don't know if it helps you. I wouldn't, nece- you know, I'm not necessarily convinced, but if you want to do it, it's not like you're doing, it's not, it's not like you're, 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 you're wearing a power balance, balance bracelet. Um, if, if for a recreational athlete, that is something that should be classified as, 
as 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 fun and interesting a, a, a pursuit rather than a feeling that if everyone else every, I, I see other people using it, therefore I need it because there are a lot of people doing things that are utterly useless. Yep. Yep. Fair enough. So let's get into continuous glucose monitors for athletes now. Um, we obviously we had our conversation last week with with Dana Lees and, and Dave Martin as well. Um, but can you recall the first time that you became aware of glucose monitors? being used or marketed towards athletes obviously outside of people with diabetes yeah I, i'm trying to remember if i if i'd ever sort of heard about the idea before this but I, I the first that i can remember is basically a guy from the company that is now known as super sapiens um cold emailed me and was coming to toronto to actually to see a researcher here in toronto a, a prominent uh glucose researcher and he asked if we could have a cup of coffee he wanted to tell me about this brave new idea that his company had and i signed a bunch of ndas and um and i should say like i actually get a lot a lot of these sort of can i tell you about my brave new idea and for the most part i'm not particularly interested um not because they're all bad but just because my beat is writing about peer-reviewed research. I don't write about like athlete X thinks this is a great idea or here's a great concept. In, for the most part, I write about here's a study that has been published in a journal that's, that tells us that this does or doesn't work. Um, but this, for whatever reason, this this guy was intriguing and he was flying through Toronto. So it's like he was going to come literally to the, the coffee shop up the street from my house. So I, I heard him out and he showed me the sort of pitch materials about uh, and I think there was the the uh, the slogan that has I, I think they're moving away from it, but that you know a real time fuel gauge for athletes. Mm. And unlike a lot of the ideas that I that I hear about from you know people pitching, um, I sort of thought that's actually you know maybe that's useful to know. It's mm. it, like the concept is not uh, cr- crazy to think that knowing what your blood sugar levels are in real time could be useful. So yeah, that was, and that was probably, I don't know, at least a year before they even launched in Europe. This was a couple, two or three years ago. Uh, It must be like three years ago now. So it's, and it's been a slow kind of burn since then, but they've obviously come into the public domain. And I I think it's now, um, there's going to be some competing products that that are emerging too. Yeah, yep. And we tend to be a little bit slow in terms of getting new tech and gadgets down here in Australia, just because small population, small market, we tend not to be a a massive priority in terms of international rollout of of new tech. But where are things at in North America with with CGM now? Is it pretty widely available and and starting to get a lot of use or is it still hard to come by? As far as I know, it's still very hard to come by. I haven't like super followed the regulatory stuff, but as of earlier this year, they they were not in the U.S. They were not approved by the FDA. I mean the the whole uh, for, for non prescription use for 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 use without a prescription. Um, the whole uh, pandemic thing uh, you may recall COVID nineteen. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> FDA got the FDA which approves medical devices got kind of busy, and yep. so t- I, I may be wrong. So like don't don't nobody uh, take me on on uh, my word on this. But from what I know, they're not yet available without prescription in the U.S. or Canada. So they're not. There's a lot of buzz, um, you know, th- because they are available in Europe and because pro teams, cycling teams, have started using them and all that sort of thing. And they, I guess, they've bought like naming rights to Ironman triathlons and all the. So they're out there, but they're hard to get. There are certainly people. It's not you know, 
it's not hard to get a doctor to write you a prescription for a, a CGM. Um, when I tried them out last year, I did it as part of a Super Sapiens research trial. So they had the they had the authority to ship some in for people who were testing out their gear. So I tested out for two months uh, a CGM, and I think there are some. I know there's some companies in the U.S. that are making that prescription. They they sort of they provide the doctor for you. Um, I think for more of a health targeted market. I think there's a company called Levels or something. Again, I'm a little hazy on this where it's like, if you sign up, they'll like, you get on a phone with uh, Dr. So-and-so and they're like, Hey, I've prescribed you this thing. Now we're going to mail it to you. <laughs> so I I, th- I think the, the barriers are coming down, but it's not yet to the point where you can just say, well, I've got a credit card and a, you know, a fat pile of cash in my bank account. So I'm going to just sign up for this thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so in Europe, I think they are available in Europe. And so I don't know the extent to which your local jogging club in Europe, everyone's got a CGM, but but it's certainly not the case here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so you mentioned obviously Super Sapiens there, which was um, one of, if not probably the first company to really launch and market CGMs for, for athletes that don't necessarily have diabetes. And the, the glucose sensor um, that they use is made by company Abbott, who make sensors for, for people with diabetes and a whole lot of other sort of medical devices and products and things. Um but the sensor that they market to to athletes is slightly different, I understand, to the one that's traditionally used for people with diabetes. Can you describe what the the differences are there? Yeah, there are a couple of differences. One is that um, the sports one is, from what I can tell, and, and I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, uh, it's deliberately like digitally hobbled to be unable to read high readings. I can't I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's say. Um, and the units, so the units are probably the ones that ones that are unfamiliar to most international people. Uh, I don't; they're the ones that go from like forty to two hundred and thirty instead of like mm. three to nine or whatever, or eleven. Um, so, in order to so if for a medical device to come to market, there's a ton of regulation, and so for Super Sapiens, it's crucial that this sport sensor be not viewed as a medical device, so mm. it cannot read the super high blood sugar readings that would be life-threatening for people with diabetes. It del- they deliberately cannot read them so that people with diabetes cannot buy these uh, sensors and then use them for, the- for themselves. So um, that's a- actually a-, a reduction in, in uh, uh, functionality. Th- that there's also an improvement in functionality, which is that on the Bluetooth uh, sort of sending data to your phone, they push it out every, oh gosh, I'm, 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 Banking, but I think it's like every minute or whatever, instead of every fifteen minutes, yeah. because if you're an athlete doing intervals, you want to know like you want to be able to see that square wave function, as opposed to just knowing that you were pretty high between the hours of nine and ten. Um, yeah. So you have better time resolution, but worse um, uh, range of values. And and also, I think, and I'm speculating here. I think the the the, the units they chose to use which are the sort of old imperial style units or whatever, uh, are deliberate, again, to make it not seem like a diabetes device, to make the, the numbers hard to compare uh, to people who are used to using CGMs or other forms of blood sugar measurement to monitor their blood sugar because they have some some form of diabetes. So yep. it's, they're trying to distinguish it as a sport-specific sensor. Yeah, yep. And so when it gets too high, it what, it just says above range or something? It just flatlines. So yeah. it, for example, one of the athletes I spoke to 
um, had run the World Half Marathon Championships, Jake Smith from Britain. He'd run a very good run at the World Half Marathon Championships with one while trying out one of these sensors. And if you look at his data from the the uh, the, the World Half Marathon Championships, it's just a flat line at whatever it was, 230 or whatever the high point is. You have All you know that is that he was above that line. And that speaks to something interesting, which is that I think they envisaged this sensor as a like avoid running out of gas kind of sensor. Mm. And so they thought no one's interested in what happens when your sugar levels are high because you've got enough fuel. Whereas in reality, what I experienced and I think what a lot of people have found is that it's kind of interesting to see what happens when you're going really hard. And maybe there's a difference between being fueled at you know 150 and 200 and 250, but they cut it off at 230. So you we have no idea how high Jake Smith was during this amazing uh, race that he had at the World Half Marathon Championships. Yeah, yeah, cool. And we'll, we'll certainly get into that about you know sort of your experience and um, I guess you know what the data means in terms of highs and lows and things shortly. One of the things I'm, I'm interested in though, and I guess people uh, if they're considering using a CGM might be interested in is how comfortable or uncomfortable it is to both insert but just wear around the sensor while you're while you're running yeah it's not bad um to insert it okay i'm not i'm not a big fan of needles so i will say it turned out this it's just like you you have this sort of applicator and you just kind of press it on your arm and it pops in and you're totally unaware that any needle has gone in now i can vouch that a needle has gone in because the first time i used one uh i got a bleeder basically i i must have hit a vein. And so <laughs> I was just doing it in front of my mirror in my bedroom because I thought it was, you know, I'd seen on online, everyone just sort of goes pop and it's no problem. And all of a sudden I started bleeding out of my arm everywhere. <laughs> now that was a bit of a, a shock. And that sometimes can lead, I think, to, to, uh, not, uh, in inaccurate or, or values. It's, it's yep. controversial depending on what you Google, but I, that was that of the four sensors I used, that one was the one that had the noisiest data where it seemed to sort of jump up and down for no reason. So I think I had a little bad bit of bad luck applying that one. The others were super easy. Uh, probably the hardest thing is getting it off because the adhesive is very good. You really have to kind of dig in there and peel it off your skin. Um, during the day or during running, no problem whatsoever. Um, you sort of aware of it, like walking through a tight doorway, you don't want to catch it on the side of the doorway. So if someone I've had the advice of like, don't put it on the side of your arm, but put it on the back of your arm, which I tried to yeah. do. So you're less likely to catch it. But then there's still things like when you're in bed, if you're mm. lying on top of the, the sensor, you become aware of it. And it also, um, there's some thought that if you're compressing, if you're lying on top of it, you may be compressing the circulation to that part of your arm. And so you're going to get false readings for, for glucose. And I certainly at night, I would, I would look at my overnight data and I'd be like, why am I having these, like, I'm cruising along and then all of a sudden I'm going really low. And then all of a sudden I'm going really high, you know, over the course, mm. you know, like for an hour or two at a time, it's like, am I having like really weird dreams or what's going on? And <laughs> I, in hindsight, I think it was more that I was rolling onto it and rolling off to it. So once I got used to that, I started trying to focus more on like sleeping on my back to get reasonable night data but so there are issues like that there are definitely usability issues like that but i will say i don't love needles but i didn't have any trouble putting this on and and what definitely it did not affect my day-to-day life and while running or anything i was totally unaware of it yep okay 
And I mean, one of the things that we talked about with with Dana and Dave last week is, and and you know, a few weeks ago with Trent Stellingworth around sort of using training data to inform your nutrition is, you know, having a particular question, I guess, that you want to answer rather than just having this fire hose of data coming at you and you don't really know what you're going to use it for, what you want to do with it or anything. Um, I, I guess from from your experience, but also you know talking to people in the company and athletes that have used it and that sort of thing. What are kind of the use cases or, or questions that you've come across where people are finding that, you know, that's what they're going to use CGM to try and answer? Well, I, I will say that I think for me and for most people I've spoken to, um, it really does present as a fire hose of data. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's a, it's really hard to stop drinking from the fire hose because mm. it's fascinating. You're like, oh, I wonder what, you know, I just ate a handful of nuts. What's that going to, because, you know, it goes beyond running, right? Like you've got 24 seven. Yeah. And of course, blood sugar is important to health as well as to 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 athletic performance. So you start to really, um, you know, I, one of the things I wrote about in the article is noticing like, oh, I was giving a talk and like a Zoom talk to a small group of people. And it's like, holy crap, my, my blood sugar was just sky high during that period. Like stress really affects it. And this is an interesting insight, right? Like this tells mm. you something, but I can, I can definitely say that my wife was absolutely, um, you know, just totally bored of the whole thing within like 24 hours of me. Like, you know, every half hour I'd be like, oh my God, guess what my blood sugar is now? It's just because, I, you know, <laughs> someone walked by or I watched this or I ate that. Um, it, it was very profoundly uninteresting to her and, and yet I couldn't stop telling her. Um, about the the latest developments in my blood sugar, yeah. But sorry, I didn't actually answer your question, which was, what is it good for? Um, I was interested personally in this phenomenon of phenomenon of rebound hypoglycemia. This idea, you know, sometimes it's and it's I think it's reasonably common. You get up in the morning, you have a little bite to eat, which causes your blood sugar to go up, which in turn causes your insulin to go up to try and get your blood sugar back down. And then just when your blood sugar is going to start coming back down because you because the insulin, you head out for your, your run or your ride or whatever the case may be. And that uses up some glucose, so it causes your blood sugar to go down. And so you get a crash b- below where you want it to be. And I, for many years, have had that experience where about if I eat something um, shortly before a morning run, then 15 minutes into that run, like almost like clockwork, it's it's remarkably consistent. I, I start feeling lightheaded and I just feel like crap for about seven to 10 minutes. And then it kind mm. of passes and I can carry on with my life. And I was curious to experiment with all that stuff to see, okay, what happens if I eat, you know, oatmeal for breakfast? What happens if I eat quick oats versus, you know, more coarse ground oats? Does that make a difference? What happens if I eat, you know, I, we don't have like frost flakes around here, but what happens if I eat the the most high glycemic breakfast I can come up with versus what happens if I eat a fried egg? Um, what happens if I run a little faster? What happens if I run a, sl- a little slower? In the, in the end, I actually had a lot of trouble testing that because this this happened like mid pandemic and my kids were at home and I so my 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 morning routine was totally dictated by um, you know trying to juggle uh, remote learning for my kids with my wife's work uh, <laughs> needs and so on. So. And also just the fact that it becomes really hard, you know, it's like that, that, you know, you can't step in the same river twice. It's like every morning I'd be like, oh, I'm going to compare this to yesterday, but you know, today is different because I slept worse because I had a huge dinner last night because I was tossing and turning all last night for whatever, you know, like there's a million reasons that it's very hard to compare any one day to any other day. So I, 
and and also the other thing is it's like I wanted to know about rebound hypo, hypoglycemia. I actually kind of already knew what was going on. Like you know, mm. there, there wasn't actually a big mystery. It was just like, oh, it would be fun to see an actual graph confirming what I feel and what science says is happening. So there wasn't any big insight for me on that. Mm. I think there's a two two. Let me say, give two examples of what where it might be useful. One is if you're out there for more than two hours at a time, where you're actually, or like more than n hours at a time, where n is usually at least two long. Or you're either going long enough or hard enough that you're going to actually deplete your glycogen stores or you, or come close to it, where fueling is an issue. Now, me in in the state that it where I was during this trial period, I was not training long enough or hard enough for that to be an issue. I was not fueling during workouts except just as a novelty to see what it looked like on the CGM. But if you're someone who's out there for a six-hour ride and you're like, so what happens if I take a full power bar or a full energy bar versus two half energy bars close together or real food or a sports drink or how do, or, or what happens if I don't take anything? What is happening? Am I actually crashing? Am I hypoglycemic glycemic by the end? Or am I just tired because my legs are burned and I actually don't need to worry about this? I think there's some... I think the interpretation is tricky. Like, what does it mean if you're low three hours into a ride? And how low is low? And what is what is the context? But I think there's potential for working out what sorts of fueling seems to work well for you. Uh, and especially as a rehearsal for racing to figure mm. out what might might work well in that context. The other thing is the sort of the larger life context. And this sort of bleeds into the CGMs were before Super Sapiens. Super CGMs were already having a moment as being hyped as a sort of metabolic health intervention, where everyone should be wearing a CGM so they can discover which foods personally spike their, um, you know, blood sugar and which ones don't, or or like whether their twenty four hour levels are high or yada yada. I, I I'm I'm not super convinced on that. I'm not super convinced that the the benefits of that sort of analysis outweigh the 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 sort of anxiety and paranoia that that stressing about it induce, uh, in, induces. However, if we think about it again in the context of a serious athlete, when I was talking to Kevin Sprouse, who's who's one of the sports medicine guys at um, e, what used to be EF Nippo, I think they have a new name this year, but the professional yeah. cycle team, cycling team sponsored by Education First, you know, his approach, like when I sent him my workout data and he was like, the workout data is only the one tiny little part of this it's not it's hard to say anything useful about the workout data unless you know what was going on last night and what was going on afterwards and it's like if you're low during a ride how can we conclude anything if we don't know what were you like overnight was you were your levels low overnight suggesting that you actually didn't eat enough dinner and maybe you needed a snack before dinner or were you super high overnight and super high in the morning and it's just you went low during the ride like those are two different scenarios mm. and so looking at these bigger patterns, and never over-interpreting one day. This was another thing that Kevin Sprouse really emphasized. It's not about you look at one day and it's like, holy crap, this guy needs to eat something completely different. It's like you look at a month of data and you say, you look at the sort of the the time averaged, like what is his 24-hour pattern over the course of a month? What are his levels? And so he looked at mine and, he's, and you know could say, okay, well, if you see that it's dipping, so from 4 a.m. to 5 a.m. every morning, you're actually down verging on hypoglycemia. That suggests you actually could benefit from like right before bed getting a few more calories because you're 
you're getting lower than you want to in the morning. And if you're going to go out and train, it's going to be hard for you to get back up. Or before you go to bed, look, your levels are actually between 8 and 9 p.m. every night. You're up at 120 or something. That's That suggests you're you might want to switch to a you know lower glycemic dinner or something like that because you're getting really um, on the border of like un- uncomfortably high uh, postprandially and before bed. You know, and look, I, I don't don't take these numbers literally, but what Ooh. I'm saying is that sort of bigger picture analysis, which is which blurs the border between performance nutrition and just like general um, health, which of course performance nutrition always encompasses. What are you eating in the other 23 hours of the mm. day? But I guess that what I would say is I can see rationally, I can, I can see the case that this could be something useful. I have not seen the proof that the results are better if you spend all this time and a substantial amount of money doing this sort of analysis. But I can see the argument that you know, if, if the resources aren't constrained, if the cycling team can afford it, it's like, yeah, that, that could be a potential thing where for two out of every 10 riders or four out of every 10 riders, you pick up some pattern in their fueling to say, I don't think you're getting enough in the middle of the day, or I think you're eating too much at this point, you know, whatever the case may be, but not, not, not one day, not, not, you look at this workout and it's like, oh, we need to change everything on the basis of this one day. That is the, 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 the the thing to avoid. Yeah. Yep. And so from, from talking to those guys and and others that you might've spoken to as well, do you feel like that sort of, um, yeah, the, the insights that they feel that they can get from the glucose monitor, I mean, they, I guess, kind of theoretical, but are they kind of reporting back that they're getting that data, actioning on it, and actually finding that helpful? So, you know, like I exchanged emails with Armin Bettenfield, the, the sports nutritionist in the Netherlands who works with um, a lot of the greatest runners in the world. He worked with the Nike's Breaking Two project, and, you know, with uh, he was credited with reviving Kennedy Sipakili's career, and he's been using them. Uh, with his training group, the NN running group, or that he works with, and he, you know, when I started to pushed him a little bit on that, he's like, "Look, right now we're trying to understand how each of these athletes work, and it's different. The insights from one athlete are different from the other. Any any actionable insights we're getting are like tiny at this point, because the the truth is, and this is when you know when I wrote about continuous glucose monitors." Five years ago now, not but you know before super stadiums, but like should endurance athletes be monitoring their glucose blood sugar to you know because are they at higher risk of diabetes? You know that trope was going around. It's like at the time I was like, okay, well let's find out what what do blood sugars look like, blood sugar levels look like in athletes, and it's like there is so little data. There is very little data, even of the sort of like let's just take a prick in the middle of uh, in the middle of a ride let alone CGM data to tell you what's happening dynamically over 24 hours. So the actionable advice is like, you know, there's nobody knows what the baseline is yet. Mm. And so, and, and again, so with Kevin Sprouse from the, the cycling team, you know, as a medical doctor, he's sort of looking for patterns and making suggestions to people. So he's, he's doing actionable things saying, you know what, your, your levels were a little high before bed and low in the morning, this suggests you need some longer lasting calories overnight, some, some, you know, slower digesting or lower. He, he's making some suggestions like that, but 
and 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 it's easier to make that suggestion probably than if he was trying to like get them to keep 24 his athletes to keep 24 hour food diaries or something like that like that stuff is just is is not practical so there's some there are some people who believe they're getting some useful information from it but i think that's in the context of like a a big support team athletes who are absolutely you know willing to 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 provide all the information to fill in the food diaries to um or you know whatever you fill in the ancillary information because i will say that's another thing when i started using the the cgm i was like okay and the, the app gives you all this op- options every time you eat every time you exercise every time you do anything you can fill in exactly what that event was so you can understand this spike was related to exercise that one was related to food that one was because i was napping Mm. I got bored of that after a couple of weeks, right? Like yep. I, I, I was in theory interested in being able to correlate all that stuff in practice. Um, you know, I, I don't have time for that. Um, yeah. unless you're, you know, literally living the pro-life, it's going to be very hard to, to do that. Sorry, that's mm. sort of rambling answer to your question, but, but yeah, there, there, are, there are some actionable hints, but at this point, I think people are still just trying to understand what athletes look like, which again is why you have Jake Smith flatlining during a race because they didn't realize that athletes would get that high during mm. you know during competition yeah and i think that's kind of helpful as well for for people who don't have that support team around them that are going to obviously have to pay full price for these kind of things is that if there's not um you know without that support it's going to be very difficult to interpret that data and, and have sort of actionable outcomes from it um is that the people who are able to do that at the moment can kind of do that background work to to figure out over the next few years probably um how practical or how useful that's going to be or whether it's going to be a fad that kind of passes and then you know 10 years from now we look back and go oh that time we all use cgms wasn't that fun just like the power balance bracelets no but yeah i I think one way that they may end up being used is not that you wear it 365 days a year but that you that each 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 bracelet or not bracelet each um device lasts about two weeks so I could see doing, get buying a set of two, spending a month at some point, uh, taking your data. And then that's enough data that instead of, and then, so you might think, oh, well, once I have it off, how's it going to help me? Well, it's like the point was never to look at a single workout and under, and, and well, okay. Some people, again, there are people who, especially people who are employed by the company who are going out for rides and saying, yeah, I look at my my levels and I want to stay in that performance zone and I feed based on the levels. So some people real time, maybe that will work, maybe that won't. But I think a more likely um, usage case is you do it once a year for a month and then you time average those data and you ask yourself, what's my 24 hour average? What what am I typically in the morning? What am I typically in the afternoon? Or or you take just the days when you were doing workouts and say, well, let's see, what did it, was I low the day after workouts? Did I did I not recover? You know, what was my overnight from like midnight to four a.m.? What were my levels on the days after I did long runs or long rides? Uh, and you're averaging that over a couple of months or, or over a month. You're, then you're having a chance to see: is there a pattern where I'm failing to re- to fuel up there, or I'm you know, or whatever the case may be? And you you know, so you're you're diagnosing some some patterns, but you're not then condemning yourself to to be monitoring this every day for the rest of your life yeah yeah and thinking about i guess when you monitored it you mentioned before obviously that there can be a lot of noise in the data and and sugars going up and down for all sorts of reasons we tend to think of obviously eating 
food with carbohydrate in it as, as the main one. Um, but you mentioned, you know, doing your, your, um, your, your presentation that it, that it went up and obviously it responds to, and a lot of people don't realize that blood glucose responds to things other than just eating things like stress and, and so forth. Um, during exercise, did you see kind of funny kind of spikes or dips and um, could you w- work back and go, oh, that was because I changed my intensity or I changed my feeding or I just went for a really long time and didn't eat anything? And what were the things that you sort of learnt about, I guess, the different variables that might affect your, your glucose during exercise? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I <laughs> is that as a runner, I, d- I don't generally carry my phone with me. And I didn't initially realize that if you don't, if I didn't carry my phone with me, then it would only record those every 15 minute pieces of data. So when I would sync up after the run, I would have, I would say, oh, my glucose was very smooth. And then when I sort of dug into the actual raw data, I'm like, oh, I'm only, I'm missing all this structure. So about halfway through my trial, I was like, all right, I got to start carrying my phone with me. Now they have Mm -hmm. super sapiens now has a wrist reader that I think that you can get, um, so that you can, so so that you'll get your minute by minute data. But once I started getting minute by minute data by catching, by carrying my phone with me, I realized there's a ton of structure in there. It's going up and down. I mentioned rebound hypoglycemia and even outside of like, there's the, there's the classic crash of like, you get up in the morning, you eat, then you, then you train and you get a crash in blood glucose. But I was seeing even outside of those contexts, I, I would often see like, I would start running and it would start just going down. Um, no matter when I was running and no matter whether I had eaten something before, and then it would sort of stabilize. And I showed that to some people, like some experts in blood, uh, blood sugar and exercise. And they're like, oh, that's kind of odd. We, we don't usually see that. Like the data is so, there's so little data that they're looking at my data, Joshua, and they're like, oh, that's, hmm, that's weird. I actually don't know why it's doing that. They're, they're surprised. There's definitely a big correlation with intensity. Um, and in fact, you know, interestingly enough, one of the, one of, pieces of advice I got from a few different people for rebound hypoglycemia. It's like, if, if your blood sugar is crashing and you want it to go up, just start sprinting for a minute. Like, Mm. because as soon as you start sprinting, that's going to activate this whole, you know, like adrenaline fueled, uh, intensity of, you know, your, your, your passive, your, your autonomic nervous system is going to get fired up. And then your blood, you you know, you're basically, essentially you're turning on your fight or flight response and, mm. and your blood sugar is going to go up not because you ate something but because you're like uh, your your body is like uh oh there's, there's no, we're being chased by a lion so we need to be ready to fight or to flee or whatever so it was really fun to look at the data from like an interval workout because it, i'd get this nice staircase effect where every time i did another interval it would just shoot up a, a little more and then i would jog and it would stabilize and then i would do an interval and it would shoot up more and I had some some really pretty pictures of like um, <laughs> staircase behaviors, and then it would sort of there, there's there's a delay. You know, you start jogging on your warm down, and it starts to crash because, or it shoots up even higher during the initial part of your warm down because you've activated all this uh, you know flux of glucose flowing into your your blood, but you've stopped sprinting and you're just jogging, and then it tries to recalibrate and it crashes. So it's very, uh, I guess the the the, sh- the short way of or the, 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 the takeaway is that it's very hard to just look at data from a workout and make sense of it because you have to know exactly like how hard was I running at that time? Was I running past a pretty girl, you know, at that point in the, in the, in, in the workout or, or, you know, was I thinking about something else? What was my nutrition before and after? How much with rest was I taking? And it, it jumps around a lot. Now it's, I think it would be different. I suspect it would be different if you're just going out for a four hour steady ride. Like that's mm. a much more, that's a much easier thing to interpret than doing five by a mile with two minutes rest. That that's really hard to make a lot of sense out of, I would say. 
or something like mountain biking or trail running where you've got variable terrain or oh yeah if you're going you up know, and down tree hills, that you suddenly have to hop over or something yeah yeah it's it's going to be it's going to be um it's going to be very hard to look at that and say now's the time to take a gel yeah. because um it's just going to be it's going to be spiking up and down in response to all the things you're doing which is interesting you know and that tells you that it's it is a window on what's going on in your body but it does make the interpretation a little more a little trickier yeah yeah and so on that I guess, window on, in, into what's going on. As, as you mentioned at the start, you know, there was that kind of almost marketing tagline, you know, real-time fuel gauge for athletes, you know, quite early on. And it, it just kind of stuck around a little bit. But as you said, it sounds like the company's sort of moving away from that a little bit. What what do you kind of, like from, from all you've, you've seen and, and researched, what do you kind of make of that statement now? And do you think that there's maybe a better kind of analogy that you can draw for what it's actually looking at? It's a fuel gauge only in a very narrow sense. It's like, I, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think if there's a any sort of vehicle that uses like three different kinds of fuel in different contexts, mm. and the fuel tanks are all connected to each other with like one-way valves and and bypasses and stuff. Um, and we're looking at probably the least significant, uh, you know, reservoir of fuel. It's 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 important for like. If it goes to zero, you're in trouble, obviously. But yeah. but, but it's not it, it, it just because it's full one hour through a marathon doesn't mean you you have no worries for you know one hour and a half into the marathon. So I don't think it's a meaningful real time fuel gauge. I it's it's almost more like a I don't know like the temperature sensor on your engine. It's it's it tells you something about how hard the engine is working and how well it's working. It's not always easy to interpret that, you know, if, if you're, if the temperature on your, I'm, I'm not a car guy, but I'm, I'm going to hypothesize that if the temperature gauge is creeping up on your car, there could be a lot of things. It could be that it's really sunny out and the, the whole car is getting hot. It could be that you're, uh, you're running low on coolant. It could be like whatever. There, um, so there is no one-to-one correspondence between this gauge and any specific um, performance parameter, but it is telling you something. It is. It's being translated through three different languages. Here's my analogy. It's. It's. You're. You're asking a question. How is my body doing? And your body is giving you an answer, but it's feeding it through Google Translate, ch- translating it to Czech, then to Polish, then to Norwegian, and then back to English. And so you're getting a very garbled, indirect uh, version of what's going on in your body, and you have to make a lot of inferences about what what it was actually trying to tell you. Is there anything that you think or you anticipate that CGM would be able to answer that you couldn't answer in another way without the CGM? I don't have a yes for that. And that's one of the questions that I was really kind of trying to push people on. It's like, yeah, this can tell you stuff. I mean, in a sense, it's this, it's exactly the same question I was asking of Whoop. It's like, it can give you a readiness score that tells you how you're feeling, but does that tell you more than just how you're feeling? Mm. Um, and maybe the answer is yes. Maybe it does it with greater sensitivity or specificity. Um, I haven't seen that demonstrated yet. Uh, and similarly with CGM, it's like, so if I monitor my blood sugar on a long ride and uh, I bonk and then I look and my blood sugar is low, it's like, you know, Eureka, I've discovered <laughs> the, the bonk. And even that, actually, it's controversial whether bonks correspond to low blood sugar. Um, and, and you know, could you have, you know, it, and if the actionable advice is maybe you should consider taking in some fuel during four-hour rides, um, 
that's not something new. Now, if the actionable advice says you should take it in at, you should take in 20 grams of carbs after two and a half hours instead of 40 grams after two hours and 45 minutes, then maybe that's something. But again, I haven't seen any, I haven't been convinced that that it can give you information with that level of specificity that goes beyond what uh, a knowledgeable practitioner, uh, you know, a coach and a sports nutritionist would be able to tell you, um, you, you know, for probably for, for less money. Yeah, fair enough. And finally, um, we talked a little bit about sort of wearables early with with Whoop and, and Aura and so on, and, and obviously CGM. Um, in your line of work, do you see other kind of wearables or tech products that are sort of on the horizon that that are sort of getting you excited about? Oh, there's you know some potential here that that might relate to you know training or nutrition for for runners, cyclists, or triathletes. You know, I mean, in terms of the technical side of things or the measurement side of things. Like the, the the one thing that I've heard about for at least a decade now is the prospect of um, measuring lactate levels from interstitial fluid in the same way that CGMs, you know, they're not actually tapping into your your blood. Um, I don't know if there's insurmountable technical uh, barriers to that, but that could be pretty cool. Like lactate levels, real time lactate levels, I think would have more. Um, more use in a training context than real-time glucose levels. But I think really in this sort of broader context of wearables, the real action is on the interpretation side. And there's a lot of startups and various companies working with artificial intelligence and machine learning, trying to say, well, if we've got this, you know, this fire hose of data, and we've got, let's say we've got five different fire hoses of data. We're feeding all the CGM data in with all the biomechanical data and all the training load data and all, you know, whatever all the data is there. We're not smart enough to make sense of it, but is it possible that, uh, you know, big, big brother here, Hal, is going to be able to um, give us some useful insights? My sentimental bet or hope or prediction is that the answer is no. Like I, I kind of, um, I like the idea that it's an art, not, mm. a, not a science. And especially when we start talking about sort of black box algorithms that are just going to like, we're going to feed the data in. We don't understand what the algorithm is doing, but it's going to tell you what, whether you should go hard or go home. Um, maybe it's going to happen. I don't know. Like the, the, the power of, of artificial intelligence is, is um, enormous. Uh, but we'll see. That, that's where I think that's where the action is right now. Is can can we figure out ways of using the data? It's it's we have way more data than we're using now. So it's not so much can we bring more data on online. It's can we mm. can we make sense of it? All right. Well, let's move on to our bonus round to, to finish off with. Um, and unfortunately. Steph was going to do the bonus round, but her removalists have arrived and she's had to, to go. Um, but the first question, what's your biggest career highlight in terms of researching and, and writing about endurance sports science? I think for it would probably have to be the the Nike's Breaking 2 project where they went for the sub-two-hour marathon. Um, in general, I, I operate at a sort of theoretical remove. I'm like, I'm writing about what the research says. I'm not I'm neither a coach nor an athlete. I don't advise any coaches or athletes. I'm just I'm just some guy, and so having a chance to be sort of a ringside seat to to an you know a real uh, 
you know, barrier breaking world-class athletic performance. It was a lot of fun, especially since it wasn't just a race. It was a science project that incorporated a race. Mm. Um, and you know, any, anytime you get to hang out a little bit with Elliot Kipchoge, it's, it's gotta be a win. So that, that was a lot of fun for a bunch of different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And so I think you were writing a, a story for runner's world from memory about the project. And then you obviously invited along as part of the media to, to go to that. Yeah. So they, I mean, Nike worked with Wired and Runner's World magazines and invited them in sort of early in the process before it had been announced to the public. And so Ed Caesar from Wired and and myself from Runner's World got a chance to go and, you know, hang out at the Nike Sports Research Lab when they were doing some testing on Elliot Kipchoge and the other runners in the project and kind of get, talk to the scientists and, and get some visibility on what it was they were trying to do as that, you know, as it developed in progress, when we started reporting on it, they hadn't really even decided uh, what the exact format of the race was be or would be, or even I'm not sure they had even decided on the location of the race at that point. So mm. it was, um, yeah, it was that was a, a sort of unique opportunity that the, the kind of thing that I couldn't have invited myself along. So just being being with Runners World made that possible. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, what's where's your favorite place to escape from work? For me, um, I do uh, a couple of canoeing and backpacking trips each year, uh, and I love them for a lot of reasons. But you know, here in Canada, it's not all that difficult to get to places where there is no mobile service, and the, the yeah, that's the only way for me. You know, it's like I can tell myself, "Hey, I'm not going to check my email," but you know, after dinner or whatever. Um, but it's it's hard to disconnect, and I am too tethered to my devices. And so, um, the the true uh, breaks from work for me come when I'm in the backcountry doing backpacking or or canoeing in the in northern Canada. Um, yeah, I I love it for a lot of things, but uh, mostly for the ab- not mostly, but lo- also for the absence of work. Yeah, fair enough. Um, is there a sport you've always wanted to try but you've never had the opportunity? The one that's been on my mind lately is, is for the last couple of years is ski mountaineering. Um, mm-hmm. I, I live in Toronto, which is nowhere near any mountains of any, um, I mean, it's kind of like Australia, to be honest. <laughs> <There's> a, mm. <laughs> the, the, we have some mountains, but they're not like exciting ones. But I was in, yep. uh, I've written about ski mountaineering a couple of times and I was in a, at a conference in Vail a couple of years ago where I had one opportunity to try it. A guy who was living there said, hey, come on out at like, 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, I'll lend you a pair of skis and skins. We will walk up Vail Mountain and then ski down it. And I don't even, I'm, I'm not a downhill skier. I was like, I was more worried about the downhill than the uphill. But it was very cool. And, and as a sort of, um, I don't know, Puritan, I guess, um, I enjoyed skiing down the mountain far more having walked up it than I would have had I taken a, a lift up it. And so yeah. if I lived closer or if I you know, had my own private jet or whatever, I would love to go uh, to like the Rockies in Canada, I guess, and, and, and with someone who knows what they're doing, so I don't die and yep. and do some ski mountaineering into places yeah. where you can't get like walking up Vail mountain was cool, but even cooler is walking up a mountain where there's nobody else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, I was talking to a guy who's a nutritionist with the Red Bull athlete performance center a few weeks ago. And, um, yeah, he works with a few guys who do that, like the really hardcore ski mountaineering. Oh, wow. It sounds amazing. Yeah. You get to places where I imagine, you know, nobody else goes. Like, no, mm. th- there's no crowd on the slope in those places. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. Um, your favorite moment from the Tokyo Olympics or Paralympics? I guess, hmm, yeah, there were a lot of, there were a lot of good ones. To be a, a kind of homer, uh, probably the one that got me yelling the loudest was 
the men's 5,000 meters, Mohammed Ahmed from Canada, um, uh, pulled off a silver medal with an amazing finish. And, uh, he's my, my, not to sort of make this all about myself, but my last national team as a runner was, I think the 2008 world cross country championships. I was like 110 years old or something like that. <laughs> and there was a young guy on the team on the junior team named Mohammed Ahmed, who was like 16 at the time. May, um, and super nice guy. And so I've always, um, as long as he's running, I'm like, Hey, I'm only one generation removed from my competitive <laughs> days, but, but so to see him, him actually, he, exactly to, to see him get on the Olympic podium, especially with a, a race like that was, was, um, was really special. And it was, it was an exciting race. Even if I didn't, even if I, you know, didn't know him at all, or had never met him, I still would have probably rated that as, as my highlight as a, as a Canadian track man. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and then finally, what are you most looking forward to in 2022? We've still got about three quarters of it left. Yeah. Oh boy. Predictions are hard these days over the last couple of years. And so to, to be totally honest, like the, what I'm most looking forward to, and I'm touching every bit of wood nearby me as I say this is, is like some normal stuff. I, mm. I'm looking forward to uh, meeting friends on a patio, having some drinks, having a meal, maybe, um, just, you know, the getting together with friends at my house, you know, like having, having friends over in the backyard, um, things that we haven't done in a couple of years. I, I, so I, I do have like my, my, my wife and I are optimistic. We've booked, we, we've made arrangements for some pretty cool stuff this summer. We're going to Newfoundland to do a really cool, uh, backcountry hike. So all that stuff is super, super, super exciting. But if I had to pick one between like, you can do this cool hike, or you can do this canoe trip that I'm doing with some of my friends, or you can have, you know, drinks on the patio with your friends once a week. I would take the, the second option. Yep. Yep. Fair enough. And I think quite a few people have answered that. Just trying to get back to life before 2020, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to be three years younger too. So, you know, yeah, if the well, time machine true. is available, I will take it. <laughs> You'll stay in that generation. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Alex. Great to chat to you and, and, get your thoughts and uh, your experiences and, and insights around continuous glucose monitors and, and wearables more broadly. Um, as we said, you know, people can go and check out Endure. It's an amazing read. Um, I, I must admit I was at a time crunch moment and had to get it on Audible. Whoever read it for you did a good job. Um, and, yeah, thanks so much. Well, th yeah, thanks for having me. This this is a really incredible series. So it's it's an honour to be uh, on the list of, of the people you've been, been speaking to. So, Thank you for, for having me. And um, yeah, I look forward to the, 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 your future shows. Awesome. Thank you. Wow. That was great. Um, Al, you're right. He's, um, he's a brilliant uh, writer, as you said, but he's also, uh, yeah, um, talks really well too. So yeah, um, I'm going to hand it over to you, our summariser, to summarise what Alex's key messages were. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I guess, fairly similar. And I think the sort of things that Alex talked about today, very similar to what we discussed with um, Dana Lees and, and Dave Martin last week, is that you know, continuous glucose monitors are still very new, uh, still very hard to get your hands on in most parts of the world. So even North America, uh, certainly here in Australia, I believe they're pretty difficult to get your hands on unless you have diabetes, obviously. Uh, but in Europe, they might be more accessible. But then I guess the question is, um, you know, what are you using it for? So having that specific question that you're trying to answer or a problem that you're trying to solve, 
uh, rather than just putting on a monitor because it seems like a good idea because then you're going to get this fire hose of data that you just don't know how to interpret and use. Uh, I guess at this stage with CGM, even the the quote-unquote experts and the people that are sort of the early adopters using it in professional elite sport still don't really have a great grasp on what all the data means. Um, the fact that we know that glucose bounces around because of so many different things, um, not just eating or, or using up fuel, but exercise intensity, you know, you get that stress response to, to exercise. And Alex mentioned, you know, that advice to, you know, if you get that rebound hypoglycemia to just do a sprint interval and, and it'll bring it up. And that recommendation's actually been there for 10 or 20 years for people with diabetes if they're suddenly having low blood sugars during exercise is to suddenly do an interval and it'll you know bring their sugars up at least for a short period of time so that's probably not a a huge surprise there Um, so to come back to that question you know can a continuous glucose monitor improve my performance nutrition at the moment the answer is probably not in most circumstances because we don't know really even if you do put a glucose monitor on um, what what normal looks like and, and what action uh, should be ta- taken to, to deal with that and, and whether it'll ever get to the stage where we have some specific guidelines around that or whether it's simply that the, you know the individual variability between people is so much that it's never going to have you know clear cut you know if your glucose does this do that in response I guess we'll um, have to wait and, and see over time whether it's it's going to get to that stage but at, at, at the moment that's certainly not the case. Awesome summary as always, Al. Thank you very much. So our next episode is going to be 34A and the question we're asking is would I benefit from supplements? And we are joined by the one and only Greg Shaw. He's spent a lot of his time at the Australian Institute of Sport and was a high level, reasonably high level swimmer in his day too, our um, yep. and does a lot a lot of work with um, Swimming Australia um, but also in putting the supplement framework together and the education program with it. So um, we're very lucky to be joined by Greg. Yes, I'm not sure if I know anyone who's as passionate about supplements as Greg is. <laughs> and I don't say that in a like everyone should take a million supplements but no. as in the process of how do you decide whether to take supplements, how to classify supplements, whether they're safe and effective and all these kind of things. Yeah, um, yeah it's a real you know, area of, of interest for him. So, um, he, you know, it was clearly an obvious choice to get him on to, to talk about this. And it is something that we've had a couple of people request via social media to, to hear about, you know, sort of more the performance specific supplements. We've talked about iron tablets in the past. And we talked about sort of nutrition strategies like carbohydrate and hydration and things, but we haven't, and caffeine a little bit as well. Um, but we haven't really touched on the process of how do you decide whether supplements are actually worthwhile for you or not. So, mm. and I think, you know, Greg has a really good way of um, sort of thinking about that. So, yeah, it'd be great to hear from him. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to love and leave you. We'll do. We'll see everyone next week for our conversation with Greg Shaw. Awesome.